Welcome back to the tomb, everyone. This is the Pharaoh, aka Ali. And for today's episode, it's called Stimulated. And I have three very important guests with me, and I'll have them go ahead and introduce themselves. Hello, everybody. My name's Tanya Lewis, and I serve as the uh, Chief Development Operations Officer for Replimune um, Inc. Replimune is a biopharmaceutical company, rather a biotechnology company in the greater Boston area um, that is developing oncolytic immunotherapy to treat oncology um, indications. And I'm very happy to be here with you today. Hello everyone, my name is Ronald Pistiff. Um, I'm currently at Tuskegee University in an integrated biological science program. Um, my background is immunology, in which I began my studies in immunology at City College, New York. And um, pleasure being here with you guys today. And uh, my name is Kojo Bonsu. Uh, I'm a third year PhD student at the University of uh, California, Irvine, in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. And my project is primarily dealing with uh, mathematical biology, investigating DNA methylation and how we can use like computational tools and mathematical tools to tell us more about how um, uh, DNA methylation like regulates our, our uh, lifetimes over long periods of time. Thank you. Thank you all for, for being here. And then, uh... I guess we'll just jump into it. So with the first question, I just wanted to ask, like, how did, um, how did you guys get into the STEM uh, field? So um, I initially uh, got into STEM because I thought I was going to uh, be a physician. Um, and so uh, I, of course, one of the scientific um, fields would have been um, great preparation for uh, medical school. I subsequently decided uh, not to do that, but as we'll get into one of the questions later, it provided a wonderful foundation for me to go ahead and pursue something else. Um, my story was a little bit different. Well, actually a lot different. Um, I started my education maybe kind of late and um, I went into um, college thinking that I was going to study nursing. And this Jamaican professor told me I should look at the biology curriculum. And then um, from there, it's kind of like, I really didn't know what I was going to do until I applied for a program at Morehouse. It, the name of it was, was called um, Emotep. So at the time I had to do an interview with a panel of about 14 doctors. So I thought all of them were doctors. And um, so I answered the questions, all the questions that they asked, asked me. And the last question that they asked me was, um, who, why, why do we name our program Emotep? So I said, you know, I tried to think of any kind of acronym that Emotep could have meant, and I couldn't think of anything. So I was like, well, I have to go and um, look that up and tell you later. So when I did, I found out who Emotep actually was. 
And that inspired me because he was a great philosopher, the first um, mathematician, um, doctor, and all these things. I, I felt like, you know, somehow I was connected. And that was my inspiration to start, begin my study of biology. And I never would have dreamed that I would be doing a PhD in biology and studying immunology and SLE and also obtaining a- um, Ronald, MPA. could you tell people what SLE is? Yeah, all right, systemic lupus erythematosus. It's the worst form of lupus. And it mostly affects um, black women which is um, something that I deeply studied when I was doing, doing my MPH. And so just so happened, I'm doing a molecular study, in which I'm looking at the, um, the effects of thymic nerve cells, TNCs, the implants on NZBWF1 lupus prone mice. And we, we have seen, seen an improvement in the amount of T regulatory cells that circulate in the bloodstream, which helps control the disease. And we also did some other studies, you know, on ki kidney inflammation to see if it can prevent proterina in the um, urine and in, in the kidneys. So, I mean, like I said before, that's how I got into the sciences is I was just inspired to study hard and you know, a dream that I never had is beginning to, you know, come true. Okay, thank you. Coach? Uh, personally, I, from high school, I guess I was like decent at math enough to where I thought I could like go to college for like something within the STEM field, despite they, despite not really having any like initial understanding of what engineering was or what like chemistry or biology really meant like as a profession i just kind of like dove straight forward and like trying to trying to cut my time with like focusing on a little bit of music and also trying to like balance how i can put science into my life but ultimately i was just able to graduate with my undergrad in engineering and i just wanted to take it as far as i could so i'm just gonna continue on getting my phd and just like see how far stem can take me Okay. Okay. Um, and that's kind of very interesting, especially um, with you, Antonia, and uh, Ronald's that you kind of wanted to go into be either a physician or a nurse. And then with that, it's led into um, different, uh, different avenues. So I kind of wanted to ask is that on your, on the road that you've been on uh, in STEMs, like what challenges have you faced as a Black person in STEM? Ronald, would you like to go first or uh, Cole Joe, since I went previously? Yeah, I could. Um, yeah, go ahead. Challenges that I have had, um, first of all, is like um, when I went to City College, basically, everybody like, you know, the security and every, everybody like that, they thought that I was like, you know, the janitor uh, that I worked, you know, was a coach you know, in the athletic department or whatever, most of the time I was there. So I um, had a professor that kind of felt the same. She felt that, um, you know, I shouldn't 
be there because of, I don't know. I mean, she was from, I think, one of those Midwestern countries. And um, so she made a statement and I kind of like ignored it. You know, it was kind of racist, but I did bring it to my PI's attention. And, um, you know, I accepted the apology and moved on, you know? So that was quite a challenge because I guess I was used to reacting in a different way, you know, from coming from my back, my background is not, you know, like really educational background. It's more like the black, the blocks I lived on, Brooklyn and uptown, we handle stuff a little differently, but I kind of you know, was able to keep my cool. And so I guess that was a, a challenge. And then also, you know, since I've been at Tuskegee, I had to, I had to um, have two major operations. So that was kind of challenging for me to just come back to school and take exams without being, you know, in class with, you know, extra class and going over stuff. So that was kind of challenging. Um, mm -hmm. Other than that, yeah. Okay, so it was kind of, so at City, um, City College, it was kind of that their perception of you while you were there is that they couldn't fathom that someone that looks like you is in school. It's like you're an invisible man, you know? It's like you walk down the hallway and like no, no one sees you, but you're still doing your thing and they can't understand how you can, um, I guess, perform and do the things that you do without them being the catalyst basically, mm -hmm. you know, I had, my, my mentor was also an you know, African-American, but he had a lot of juice, you know, he brought a lot of money into the university. So it was like, they just looked at you in a different way, you know what I mean? Yes. Part of this, this family that he kept it kind of close-knit, you know what I'm saying? He kept like people of color in his lap. You know what I'm saying? And we would do things just as great as, you know, the white or the Chinese, but, you know, it's a sort of like a resentment. That's one of the reasons why he, he kind of like was ready to go because it was like, I guess being a black in STEM and in say city college or say African-American, Mm -hmm. It's sort of different because when you look at your emails, like you can pronounce your name, like your name is, is your last name is Davis, right? Yeah. But most of the names on the email, you know, it was very difficult to pronounce. And you knew that if you go to a conference, like, of course, I'm going to sit with my people, people of color, to be chilling. And they would ask me, they would say, um, so what island are you from? You know, I'm like, yo, I was born here. I was born in South Carolina. But that's, and they say, what, what's that, an island? I'm like, no, it's a state in the United States. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, you kind of feel, well, not like out of place, but you know there's a connection with all of us. There is this connection, and that, that's what's missing. It's like we don't understand that. We all come from the same people. You see what I'm saying? So we need to, to promote that in the community and 
then I think that, you know, it'd be easier for all of us when we go through these, these journeys, like through science, careers in science. But I'm pretty sure you don't see that many people that look like you in your profession. But I don't know. I know in my, you know, in my journey, it has been a lot different, you know, like mostly internationals that I would meet, you know, along my journey. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Ronald. In terms of, honestly, I feel I feel like I resonated with what with some of that he said, where he's where it was like the perception of everybody else of upon you. It seems like they feel as if you're not supposed to be there. You're not supposed to like perform as well as you are. I feel I have had that type of feeling since my undergrad. Even just walking in as a freshman, I noticed like. I was the one black male in my class. So it was just like everybody already looked at me a different way. Nobody really talked to me of a class of like 90% white, other white, other white kids. So it was just like, I understand, I understand that. But then it was just like, as I kept going on inside of like my engineering degree, even if you see international students, a lot of people didn't really know how to interact with me. They made a lot of assumptions about me. A lot of people just didn't think I would be able to perform as well as I did in some ways. And it was just kind of like, at a point I would have done, I did a lot of the things out of spite. I was just like, I'm able to do this and I'm going to do this. But it was just kind of like, after a while, I noticed that it was just me trying to overperform or like perform for all of these people. When at the end of the day, the only challenge was the fact that they were uncomfortable with me being there. And that's still how it feels like today, even trying to interact with my grad program. It's still, I am like one of very few black students. So they still, it still falls on deaf ears when I bring up things that primarily affect black communities or like even just like other communities of color. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I can say that definitely at, um, at UMass Amherst, cause I don't care, I call people out. Um, is that being in um, biochemistry is that dealing with some of the professors, it was it was uh, subtly hostile. And I think it was maybe, it wasn't until maybe my junior year that I finally had a Black professor. And even when I tried to go reach out to him and just try to pick his brain and try to figure that out is that it was disheartening because I kind of got the same vibe from him that I got from other uh, professors. So it's 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 hard because sometimes everyone that's your color ain't your kind. Yeah, it's like you were you would wish to find community within your peers of colleagues within other students or even within other people of color. But then in academia, as you go further up, it just seems. It does. It's not as easy to find people who are willing to say, yes, we are a community. We are like here to support each other versus people who have gotten ingrained and somewhat jaded by the fact that they need to grind hard and like set into a mindset in order to get like progress within their within their field or within their tenureship. Yes. And I think that sometimes, especially like you say, when you go higher up in academia is that um, unfortunately with some of our brothers and sisters is that they don't, especially when they're in white spaces, they know they're black, but they don't want to appear black. So when they're interacting with black students, it's, they don't want to seem like, oh, well, you're, 
having preferential treatment to this was like, no, I'm just having a conversation with a black student. But I feel like times that they go out of their way not to appear that way when it's just simply just, I'm asking you for help. Uh, Antonia? So um, before I launch into um, my challenges, um, it's been, I recognize that I'm the only black female a part of the podcast. And so um, that in of itself, right, may uh, say something about why my experience was a little different, right? Mm -hmm. um, if uh, we're doing real talk. Um, so, uh, you know, my experience was different, but um, I was educated in um, a college prep, in a college prep high school uh, in New Orleans that was predominantly white. So when I came to the Northeast to do undergrad at Northeastern in biology, um, I had already been suited with a coat of armor uh, for how to manage um, being one of few and sometimes the only that looks like myself. I will say some of the challenges that you described, the three of you have described, I had not experienced. I had a very supportive, um, nurturing environment um, in college. Um, in fact, some of my professors um, took to me, um, but I would say my challenges in undergrad um, probably had to do, were probably more self-imposed as a result of not seeing others um, that looked like me. Um, and also uh, a problem of focus because I was young when I went to undergrad and I was convinced I was going to save the world. So I was focused on everything else but um, studying. Um, but in terms of, you know, racial challenges, um, I didn't have really any overt, um, but I said, I told you all I did undergrad at Northeastern um, and it was a very nurturing um, community of uh, Black educators um, that were committed to the success of um, Black students. Um, and like I said, I had managed to connect with some of my non-Black professors, um, uh, even though, you know, they weren't, um, you know, I was Black, one of their Black students. I didn't feel treated uh, differently um, in any way. Um, but I do recognize that the struggle is real and that my experience is not the vast majority um, of the experiences. And so I think we all need to commit ourselves to uh, improving um, and creating a pipeline um, of Black people in STEM. And really, I think the conversation, I tend to be old school, so the conversation it, for me, isn't necessarily about what everybody else can do for us, but really what can we do um, as Black people sitting in STEM to help um, our Black communities understand the importance and really begin to drive kids into um, the pipeline. Because I think there are some resources that, in fact, do sit there 
um, and we need to make people aware and not afraid uh, to walk through those doors and take advantage of those resources. Sorry, I kind of went off track. Oh, yeah, but, <laughs> I, I I agree with you, actually, in a lot of these like avenues, it seems like there are ways there are black educators and communities that are trying to like increase this pipeline of students and actually support new like new black scholars into the next generation. But it's just these resources need to be found or you need to make sure that you have access to them. So it, it's both important and uh, and uh, issue at hand. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, I definitely agree that. Um because I'm not talking about the same stock as like, let's, we don't need to stop asking people to help us. We need to help, we need to help ourselves. And uh, I guess one of the questions would be is that is, well, every black community is not the same, but I'll just kind of as a broad general uh, generalization, it's like, do you think that STEM is emphasized in black communities, either in the schools where um, predominantly black communities are or in uh, the family household? Well, actually, um, I, I'm aware that they have programs like STEM programs, like in schools, different schools, but a lot of times, you know, like with my experience going to schools out here in Montgomery is that they'll have a STEM program, but you know, it's kind of like, it's not promoted to everyone. So basically, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I could call myself a late bloomer, or maybe not. I was always kind of bright in school, but having like a role model, a mentor who was in science, like somewhat, you know, like, how could I be the first scientist that some of these people would meet, ever see, see when, you know, they come from Alabama, where George Washington Carver, Booker T, Washington, and all these scientists, you know what I'm saying, they have a science program at the school. So how could I be the first scientist that they met? And I just got here in 2016. You understand what I'm saying? So. It, it amazes me that, you know, when people, like you say, they get high up in academics, they don't come back to these schools. You know what I'm saying? They may send some funds and say, okay, we got a science program, but where are the actual scientists? Where are the people who actually work in the field? Why they don't get to meet these people, you know, that wrote these papers and these journals? Why they're not coming back? into the community and creating, you know, something besides a program in school because, you know, funds are misappropriated, you know. So when you go in the neighborhood, you see no kind of facilities after school programs promoting science, you know. So I think that, you know, we should act like you were saying, find the resources, but then create programs within these communities so that kids can see at a young age and start learning that, you know, it's possible for them to become, you know, to work in these scientific, scientific fields. So, yeah. so I think, a crit oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was gonna say, I think a critical part 
Um, and I've been spending maybe the last two years thinking quite a bit um, about this as I have two teenage daughters and the public school system where we live. Um, I think the critical part that we've walked away from is the responsibility and accountability of the family. Um, and I was happy to hear you ask, is STEM important um, in families? And I think we've got to figure out a way, I agree with Ron about creating programming um, in the schools, around the schools, not necessarily funded by the schools. We have lots of um, organizations um, that would happily give funding um, to create programs in communities of color uh, related uh, to STEM. But the thing is, we got to make it more interesting in the streets, right? More interesting than the real life day-to-day -day hardcore issues um, some of the families um, are dealing with. And I think we got to find a way not to just hit the kids, but hit the value system of the families, right? Um, because mm -hmm. the two greatest influences, right, um, our kids are going to be their friends and their families. And so I think we have to find a way to work in parallel um, to have an impact on both, both of the, those institutions that um, have influence um, over our kids. And so I think it's really a multifactorial um, issue um, that we need to start breaking down into component parts and really trying to attack all of the parts so that we can encircle a kid in understanding that, um, and I, I think um, a, a key part that's missing also, right, is teaching our history. Like Ron, it hits me when you went to um, the interview and they asked you and you did your research, right? I think it is important for kids um, to understand um, if they're not, in positions where they think, you know, living lives that they think uh, they might want to live. That's not where our people started, right? There's a whole bunch of um, stuff that goes, that contributes to why you might find yourself here, but it is not where our people started. And so I do think teaching our history, our true history of the impact of genocide and race um, on our people um, is an important component. And I, I also think, like I said, like I started an equally uh, important component is the values um, in the home. The reason I am who I am is because of who my mother was. My mother is a registered, is. My mother is a registered nurse and I grew up in the ghetto and I made the transition daily from my house in the ghetto to my private, predominantly white institution that did sit in the ghetto um, that had an armed security guard and a German shepherd um, to make sure we were safe. <laughs> um, but um, I always went back to um, my community, my family, in which it, education was important and was seen as a passport right to a better life. And so I just think we gotta do a better job as um, you know, community members um, and family members in trying to impart that value of education and the skills that STEM teach you for and can help 
um, build in you in terms of trying to create a better life uh, for yourself. I'm sorry it took so long. No, no. You hit no. a lot of, honestly, I, I was like trying to say, I was like, I was going to try and interject, but you were hitting a lot of good points because you're right. It is like, like STEM concepts are like teaching um, these teaching like kids at a young age to be interested in STEMs or interested in science as a career. It just never, it was lucky for me that my parents were like, you, well, my African parents were like, you're going to be a lawyer, doctor or an engineer. And I was like, I'll be a lawyer, doctor, or engineer. But it was like, I had that like driving influence on me when I went to my school. It wasn't it was very close to army bases. It was not very well funded and it had a lot of, uh, of its own racist things going on. Like, uh, yeah, a bunch of like small chapters of the KKK, yay Maryland, sending petitions around the school. But it's like, I literally, I'm still going to this school thinking that I need to go here, get my education and then do what I need to do to like get myself moving forward. And then once I got my, once I was able to like do that, once I was able to like give back, I was able to participate in the um, National Society of Black Engineers, like a program that they had in the, um, uh, the SEEK program actually that they had in the city of BC where they just uh, sent a bunch of undergrads and other um, postgraduates as interns to just teach th kids three ages, like third grade to maybe like seventh grade about STEM concepts in the schools. And they were all interested in solar powers and in solar power and fuel cells and physics at like a young age and doing math at a very young age. And I thought that was like a very enriching way to give back to the to the community and get the kids interested. But then once I continue to age, it's not I didn't I personally didn't have any of those programs in my high school. And I know that if I was to I would not have gotten any of those programs unless I went to like a particularly rigorous high school or particularly STEM focused high school. And even in that case, would I personally have been afforded the opportunity of going given any other red tape? But it's honestly, I do believe it's keeping it in the family, making sure a family understands that STEM is a way that people can have this upper mobility and have this generational wealth and take care of your family for long periods of time. But then also how we can continue to instill that within like our generalized community and then the academic community and of like broader, broader academic communities of color as well. So it's, a bit, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So thank you for going on, honestly. It, it had me thinking about all the things that we should do, we should really be doing. And something that both uh, that both you talked about was the family and then also the age of when you get exposed to it. And I can say that I am a product of when parents do it correctly because uh, my both, both my parents taught me about the history of our people taught me about M Imhotep, uh, Louis Latimer, a lot of uh, George Washington Carver, a lot of uh, prominent Black people here in the Americas and also on the continent. And with having that type of education is that when I went into school, I didn't, I didn't have doubt that I could excel because like, I didn't look at math as hard because I know that my ancestors were the ones that created math. So I know that it was in me, I just needed to pull it out. And then having the uh, influence and the pressure from my parents to excel in these things. And it wasn't pressure like you, like you have to get an A, it was more so we expect you to get an A because we know that you can do it. And exposing me to a lot of different things. Like uh, one thing is, is that when I was in high school, um, I told my dad that 
uh, I was going to start taking calculus. He bought me like a two DVD set uh, tutorial on calculus, and I taught myself calculus before I even took it. So it's uh, re it's uh, reinforcing, uh, like you said, Antonio, the values of like the families and and some of the obstacles that you hit along the way, especially if you are going to a predominantly white school. Um, it happened to me in fourth grade. We were having we were supposed to do a book report on inventors. So I went to my teacher and I told her, it's like, oh, I want to do a book report on black inventors. And then she looked at me and says, like, there are no black inventors. If I didn't have the support system that I had at home, I would have taken that as gospel and just be like, well, I guess black people didn't do anything. Um, for those who don't know, my father is a very avid reader. <laughs> so the next day when he when I went to school, my like he almost gave me scoliosis from the amount of books that he gave me to show this white woman. It's like, this is what African people have done. This is what we've invented. So I think it's very important on, um, I would argue maybe more so on the family part because before you even go to kindergarten, you your parents are there instilling values and things within you. And especially as black parents is that it's, you kind of act as a safeguard against the stuff that they, the stuff that they are learning at school. Well, against the miseducation that they're getting at, at school, because again, every, um, almost every day when I'd come back from uh, school, my dad would sit me down and say, like, what did you learn today? And I'd have to tell him what I learned. And then he would tell me, it was like, oh, that's, it's like, okay, that's true. That's not, it's like, this is why this is not true. And he would, he would pretty much call it like de-Europeanizing me. And from that, that's how I was able to navigate these spaces and not necessarily lose who I, who I am as an African. So I think it's very important for, I think it really does start at, at home because if you don't get that type of um, confidence at home, the world out there is not gonna give it to you for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, oh, you wanna go ahead, Ron? Yeah, one, one of the problems with, you know, that is that, you know, now we talking about 2021, 2022, um, the family is just not the same anymore. It's like you have single parents, single mothers living in the hood, you know, and their values are more, and the kids are being raised by, you know, um, computers, computer games. Mothers are sending their kids to go, go play a game as soon as they get from school. So they don't, they don't really get that reinforcement that you're talking about. So. I believe that, you know, those of us who have had that family background and that nurturing, we have to think of a way to, I guess, um, come together to build an infrastructure to where we could accommodate some of these kids who come from these single parent homes. So they're not gonna get that nurturing, nurturing that you're talking about. They're not gonna learn about who they are and they're not gonna, have a chance to build their confidence because when they go home, they're sent away in front of the television. They buy them all these expensive games. So they go and they play Madden, you know, NBA 2K or whatever, and all those things. And they are very good at that. You know, like my grandkids, 
they come and they grab the phone. As soon as you come in, my little nieces, Uncle Ronnie, can I get your phone? So everybody fighting over the phone. And as soon as they get the phone, they go to this little game and watch these little kids running around. Some game that, you know, probably we didn't create, you know. So they're fascinated about the game. Mm-hmm. So they, that's. That's a. I but believe. Brian, let me. Go oh, ahead. I, I actually do believe that's a, an avenue like within the last year I've learned a lot about how this is like a very West Coast thing that they're trying to do but scientific communication on Instagram scientific communication through games and YouTube they're trying to create all of these new types of media for kids to for particularly kids of color to be attuned to so that they can see like a black scientist in like a toddler's book or play a game and understand like this was made by a black creator and this is gonna be able to teach me how to code or just be able to see videos online of things of like scientific concepts that even break them down just like having a black face like breaking it down at like a low grade level will really help kids be under like see a black scientist on their videos that they see and then also be able to really connect with that on a level but i believe that's a that's a little that's a a a newer thing that has not been happening too uh too frequently so far so I'd like to use uh, what Ron said as a jumping off point to go a little deeper. Now, we've always um, had as um, a challenge um, single parent homes. I don't think in an, that in and of itself, right, um, is, is the issue. I do agree that there are issues that people are dealing with that make them, when you're hungry, I'm sorry, you can't focus on learning math, right? So that's why earlier in my comments, I said there are multitude, it's really multifactorial and we have to find out how to um, build um, a systematic infrastructure, right? That will envelop um, the child and and help with some of this. But I still think, right? Because they still idolize their mother in that single, parent home, right? And so I still think in order to get the kids to where we want to want them to be eventually, and the families, if you talk to them, um, we still got to figure out how to work with that. Um, and Ron, what I would say is, I think we got to stop trying to build systems from our perspective. I think when the kids come and grab your phone, right, or they sit on Madden, right? That's a lot of programming right there. That's stemming in in and of itself. So is the question, you know, uh, Tanya, you can play with Uncle Ronnie's phone, but I wonder that game that you're playing, um, how did they make that game, right? Like engaging just basic, right? So it doesn't always have to be a structured um, environment. I'm just using the conversation as an example, Ron. I'm not saying (laughs) you don't do this. Um, because, uh, you know, when I was in undergrad, I was a, uh, science chair for, um, an academic enrichment program for, um, young girls. Um, and so I had to spend time thinking about how to, um, reach them, um, in the most effective programs, uh, for children as well as adults, right, is when you can reach people where they are. Right. So versus trying to force them to go sit outside and garden and watch the little thing grow. Right. And figure out what are the stem 
what are the STEM concepts that they're learning, you know, let's use the things that they are already interested in, right? And that's how we begin to, I think, um, engage them in different ways and actually in ways that will compete effectively, I think, with some of the other pools they may have on their um, attention spans. And I wanted to um, kind of connect what you said, Antonia and uh, Kojo, is that, so I agree with meeting people where they, where they are. So coming up with uh, uh, scientific communication programs that use maybe video games or something like that. And it's like, I do think that that is good. I also, but I also believe that at some point there are some basic skills that if, <clears throat> if we kind of cater to people where they are and not address some of the basic skills is that it's like, yes, it's good that you can learn from a video game. It's like, but you still need to have the discipline to sit down and read a book. And um, I think with, especially with how technology is progressing and the modes of education is that people wanna be educated in short spurts. It's like, I wanna sit down and if it's a five minute video, I can sit through it, but they can't sit through a 45 minute lecture. And I think it's something where it's like, we need to instill, I guess maybe it's more so the concept of discipline to sit down and sit through a 45 minute lecture or spend an hour and a half just strictly reading. And one other thing that I just wanted to touch upon is that um, as well as the children, and like you said, uh, Antonia, is that it's the parents as well because with a lot of our history hasn't been taught so I think it's hard to ask parents to teach something to their children that was never taught to them so I can't tell you about Imhotep if I don't know about Imhotep myself I, I understand that but what has gotten our people through um, is the belief and the sheer will of the generations um, of the, um, the elders that there is something better uh, for our children, right? So it always started with somebody who didn't know something, but it started with a belief that there was something better. And then how do you think about getting your kids to um, that, uh, that something better? What I'll say is about reading in STEM. Now, I'm a voracious reader. However, I do think the research supports that typically people who are naturally good at STEM aren't naturally good at the language arts, right? Mm -hmm. um, the two kind of don't really travel, travel together. And so in terms of, I do think they're on, on to something with trying to deliver content um, but I think, Ashante Ali, they can deliver the content, um, the foundational stuff that they need to eventually be able to do the coding and stuff. They can deliver that in spurts um, as well, right? It doesn't need to um, be in uh, necessarily 45 minutes. I think we got to look at how, like um, Ron said, you know, the world is different. It is very different. You know, like this whole podcast concept, I was like, oh, Lord, let me try to get on early because I'm not sure I, I know exactly what to do. Um, and so 
they're learning in very different ways from the way, you know, even you had to learn right now. I'm old. So, you know, I sat down and took didact and, you know, it was a didactic model, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. And I don't think our educational system is keeping up with, right, um, the different kinds of ways in which we can stimulate kids um, to learn, right? I don't know if the right model, the model for me was good, having somebody stand up there and lecture for 45 minutes, because that's the way I learned. Like they're moving to using pictures to assemble things. Well, guess what? I can't assemble anything because I'm spatially in, uh, you know, geometry is in my strong suit, but mm -hmm. I can listen to you and interpret. And so I just think we got to uh, look at educationally um, some different ways for delivering um, content. So it's very exciting to hear what uh, Kojo, um, you know, was presenting. And um, I agree, I guess my bias is, is that, first of all, how I grew up, and then also is that going through- You're your father's son. I am my father's <laughs> son. <laughs> Discipline um, is important. Yes, and I guess going, growing up that way, but then also going through my MPH is that my thesis chair, he was very, uh, he was stuff with me but it was the right amount of pressure to get me to the next level. And when I talk about not having the discipline to sit down and read, it's like when you're doing a thesis or a dissertation, the amount of reading that you just have to sit down and go through the articles and everything like that. And it's like, that's something that can't be streamlined. So I guess when I'm talking about it, I'm talking from a standpoint where I'm expecting um, these children to end up getting their uh, master's or their um, PhD. And those are the types of things that I would want them to learn so that when they get there, it's just, they look at it as like, oh, like I can, like I can already do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, you, um, you didn't start there, right? It's mm -hmm. an evolution. So what this conversation is really about is that the pipeline isn't there. So we can't start there with scaring them that you're gonna have to <laughs> read, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, twenty page, twenty page, you know, five twenty page articles in a right. night, right? We can't, we yeah, can't start. There. It was it's kind of embarrassing, but I didn't even read my first scientific article until like the age of twenty two. I was like. It's like, I never sat down and was like, this is a scientific paper. I should open it up because I'm interested in science. It was just like, yeah. <laughs> the medium never came, but you can still do it. Mm -hmm. And I hear, I hear what you're saying, Ashantelli. And I think the conversation has to be about preparation, right? Because, of course, the ultimate goal in creating um, a pipeline for uh, Black STEM um, professionals, right, is right through um, higher education, right, and PhD. So, you know, there'll be steps along the way where you, um, where you need to uh, prepare them, right? But I think right now, you know, they, all, they, all these kids, irrespective of race into is gaming and music, and you know, that's coding, yeah, that's right? Mm -hmm. it, I, you know, it's like, I think we gotta stop like trying to make it so, complex because I don't think it really is. And I think to the extent we can unpack it and break it down for them, 
um, in AC, right? If somebody likes building, right? Um, and, uh, you know, just, I think there are games that um, can teach them those things. And um, we just got to think about having a conversation um, a little differently, you know, just in, in by conversation, I mean, just asking the question, open the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. For their little minds to, you know, to wonder um, how, how their game um, works. You, you know, sometimes it's just about planting a seed for a kid and then they'll, they'll run with it. I don't know, Ron, you have some little kids around you. Do you see that in your experience? Well, um, I kind of see, I, I, I try to encourage them. Like you say, like I would tell them, like, you know, think about who um, invented the game, things like that. Oh, you can invent a game like that yourself. So other kids can, can look at, you know, things like that. But, um, I don't know. I I'm thinking on the level of maybe writing books, you know, because we write books, right? If we write the books, we're gonna talk about, you know, and that's gonna probably help kids to see better, you know, people, you know, children of color to see that we're writing books and we are kind of like encourage them to seeing black authors and seeing black characters in the books. I mean, that's a way. I do think that's, a, I do think that's important image, imagery, right? Um, if you can see it, you can, you can believe it. I mean, I was committed to um, having my girls see the images. So those little expensive American girl dolls, um, I made sure they did have them because they uh, created girls, you know, dolls that, um, that looked like them. So when they would walk into any environment, they would understand that, hey, it's not a question about whether I belong. It's a question about how I can help you, right, with my presence. Um, and so I just, I think we got to give some real thought to how do we take these kids and we, we um, armor them right um against some of these things that are really beginning to revisit us in the world and maybe they never went away i don't know in terms of you know these racial incidents and things like that maybe they never went away i don't know um but i i just think we got to take those opportunities where the kids find joy and translate those into educational opportunities Yes, yes, I definitely agree with you because uh, because I'm not I'm not against using video games or things like that because before I went into my MPH there was a uh, a mobile game that I play on my phone all the time it's called Plague Inc. which pretty much you play as like you construct a virus or bacteria or whatever you create a disease and then the point of it is to try to spread it to the rest of the world so it's like you could increase the in infectivity. Yeah, it was it, okay. It, it the game did not age well. Uh, <laughs> it was cool back then. <laughs> but I, I will say now that because of the pandemic, I went back and played it. They did add a version to it where you're supposed to stop the spread of a disease. So it's so it's good. But that exposed me to certain um, public health concepts. So that mm -hmm. when I went and got my MPH, it was just like, oh, 
it's like yeah i know about infectivity and like how if it mutates like there's a balance between infectivity and lethality and if you're too lethal then you can't spread as fast so um it's those types of things that i understand that it has a use for it um but i i agree with uh what you said Anton. you said is about the preparation because i was able to i was prepped throughout uh, my years growing up that when i came across that game I saw it as fun, but I also saw it as something that I can learn from. Your your parents, um, knowing them right, were prepping prepping you for eventual greatness. They recognized it was a journey, right? And you're still, um, you know, I think you're pretty awesome myself right now. Um, but you know, you're still pursuing some academic pursuits, and so. You know, and I just think, I think we got to return to some of the old school stuff. You know, like the Saturday program, you know, yeah, I, my I, mother kept me yes, wrapped I, up and, you know, every summer I was in somebody's program somewhere learning something. When I was going, I told y'all I was in the college prep high school that summer before. She's like, look, I don't know if you're ready um, for the math program. I'm putting you in summer school, Right. Um, so that you can be prepared to deal with the math that you're going to, um, you know, be hit with. I, I, I will say I had a very special mom. I have a very special mom. Um, and so I think we got to figure out how to bring some of these old school things back yeah. um, for, for the kids and add it, add some of the new school things, you know, like <laughs> you have a Saturday academic enrichment program, but you got a gaming chair. You know, where, you know, it's not about just sitting learning math. We're going to jump into learning math. Now, it's very hard for my mind to learn things. I, so I hear what you're saying, Ashante Ali, without first having somebody stand up there before me and teach me the foundational things. Mm -hmm. But I watch kids and they learn very differently, right? So, you know, Saturday academic program, we're going to build yeah. us a game. I you want to play really, that? Game I really want that to come back. Almost just like a, it's like the concept of a community now, like feeding the children instead of just like only parents having to instill all the pressure. Now, if you live within the, if you have like a community around, you can just say, oh, on Saturday, all the parents tell your children to come down to the park. We're gonna do like some form of like some sort of educational thing for them to like learn a new STEM concept, or maybe we're all just gonna play games together so that they can learn about how this game works and how these all, all the kids can interact with it and then interact with it both with an educational like aspect in mind, but also with the knowledge that they're just going there to have fun within their community and with their friends. So even if they, so even going back to what Ron said, cause I, I, I guess I personally came from a single uh, parent home. I lost my father like later in life, but it was like, before he left, he instilled all of these values in me to be like, this is what you need to do if you want to like continue on in your life. And I was like, yeah. So if I was able to spread that amongst the community and then actually have somebody else come and help my mother out while like she was raising me, I feel like these are the types of like, like uh, enrichment and like educational activities that historically would have been given by the church, like Sunday school type activities. But since, but for STEM, but for STEM, it would be very helpful to have it like as more like just general community activities. So it's not only, well, to, you know, keep Sunday is Sunday. <laughs> yes. And uh, Ron, would you want to speak about the, like the impact that these programs can have? Because I know that when you're in New York, you did programs like that where you kind of use basketball to get the kids, but once you got them, then 
it was an avenue to. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's like um, like Tanya was saying, it's um, kind of old school, and we need to bring that back. You know, like a community concept, because like you know now you know the changes that the churches they're not even supportive of everyone in the community. They they have become such a business orientated that you know the love is not there anymore. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So to keep the community of any family together, it's got to be love. You know what I'm saying? You have to teach these kids that love is more important than just the pair of J's that you're going to get. You know what I'm saying? Or, or you know, the monetary, because everybody has assimilated into this American, American, become so Americanized. It's about more about money and how you can get money and how fast you can get the money. And, you know, that's what our neighborhoods have become. They've become neighborhoods where people are more concerned with I than we. You know what I'm saying? If we come together, we is always stronger than I. You know, so these kids are learning these type of concepts like, yo, I got this and you don't got this. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I'll rob you for that because I want it. You know what I'm saying? Instead of we working together so we all can have. So I think that, um, you know, bringing the communities back together and having events to where we can, um, but first, like you say, we need infrastructure because if we go and stand on the corner every day, you know, and we preaching, it's like preaching on the corner. You know what I'm saying? So the kids don't see anything, no progress. So we have to go in with some type of resources so that their minds, can, we can gravitate. And they could come, you know, and feel like they get some kind of benefit out of it, even mm-hmm. for the kids and, and the parents. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna give this to you, young people, because um, you know uh, I'm working with uh, not with uh, not as much uh, capacity as I used to have. Um, but all the urban communities have programs with um, uh, I'll call it building reclamation, right? These buildings that have been abandoned and not used or lots, right? You get the city to give you one of those buildings, right? Um, You get donations from corporations um, to fix it up. And then you also get donations um, to feed the kids. Because, you know, I am of a culture that when you're trying to solve a problem, you're breaking bread. (laughs) And so I think um, we just have to, you know, think creatively um, in those ways and see opportunity in everything um, that is in um, our community because it will need to be in the community to attract um, the kids. We can't put it across town. We got to put it in in the community because um, then that makes it easier for parents to interact and to get them there and for the kids to you know get themselves in. We start teaching them responsibility and things um of that nature but uh you know there's grant probably grant funding available you probably don't even have to spend time trying to write a grant for that you probably just go knock on door at city hall and say listen we want this building right here to do some uh community uh programming um you know and then the other thing is all the churches um responsible i hear you ron on that 
Um, it all begins with love and you, we just got to hold them accountable and say, listen, we need some space um, to do this activity um, with these kids. And we need your church members to feed us. So uh, y'all cook for us and we make sure the kids have, you know, a meal while you're trying to impart, right? Because it's, um, it's a multifactorial um, issue for sure um, in our communities, but um, we've always solved our own problems. And I don't know how we got away from that. And I think it's time for us to return um, to that. Um, we have to have some agency and discipline um, and self-control. And money, money moves things. Money changes trajectories for sure. But what I what I'm I guess what I'm saying is it's not all about money, like you're saying, Ron, right? It's not all about money. And so um let's think creatively how we can do some things with some of the things we already have. Um, in our communities uh, to begin to change the trajectory for um, kids. Money will come later, I think, money. You know. Always does, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of wanted to ask about that. <clears throat> so in um, your opinions, like how, how can uh, Black people in, in STEM do a better job of translating their research into meaningful impact on their communities from an academic and also from an industry um, standpoint? So uh, I think there are various ways uh, you can do it. You know, I'm always uh, surprised. I don't know why, by this whole technology stuff. Like you just decided you're going to do some podcasts, right? <laughs> and <laughs> Um, you know, like this whole concept of TED Talks, right? So I think um, to get the word out, it seems the best way to do that with uh, most people, not even just young people these days. Um, I have a challenge accessing it, but most of the world does not. And that's through social media, right? Even if you go to some of the company websites, because COVID has forced us to think very differently, right? They're doing a podcast um, type model that they link from the company websites and stuff like that. So I think that's one non-traditional, maybe it's becoming traditional, um, certainly accepted way um, of doing things. And then I think you have the traditional ways, lobbying in the academic institutions. Kojo, where did you say you were in school? Uh, the University of California, Irvine, Southern California. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, dealing for Kojo Wright, uh, dealing with his uh, uh, academic faculty and his program. But I would, um, I would recommend that you think about outside of your program as well. And what are the, um, the collaborations that you could have with other departments that might be more receptive to some of the things um, it is you're talking about, like everybody is coming up with uh, DEI offices and universities, right? Where yeah. they have the cultural centers on um, campuses and some of those um, cultural centers actually have research budgets, um, uh, you know, tied to them. So I think it has always been the case that um, in, in some cases, right, for us, we can do the traditional 
uh, paths. We certainly can, but I think there's some non-traditional ways that are presenting themselves that we just have to think a little more creatively, innovatively, which Sam has trained all of y'all to do. <laughs> uh, more. I'm still in training. Right. <laughs> and, that's okay. and that's okay. And if you do this, if you achieve this, then you're going to, that's all right. You're going to have ended your training. I'm going <laughs> to um, say you made it, you did it. Um, and so I think you just, you got to use some of these critical and uh, uh, critical reasoning and analytical skills that um, you're learning as a part of uh, the STEM fields, right? Um, to uh, apply to solving, I think, some of the funding problems that you're talking about. Ashanti, I leave the money's out there, right? And I know we hear that all the time, yes. right? And then you can't, you can't have no shame, right? What, it's the temptations ain't too proud to beg. Yes, yes. Right, right. You can't you can't have no shame. If you believe, you, you gotta believe, right? You can't expect anybody else to believe more in your ideas than you believe in them yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you just gotta suit up and um, you know, pursue, pursue funding and just don't take no for an answer. Yes. And I yeah. think that with well, just kind of with my experience at Tuskegee is that they have done things where they essentially use the, the intellectual capital that they have there with the university being there and then bringing that to the community around. But with some people that I've spoken to, it's all, it has seemed that they use money as, <clears throat> as a way to not do something. So, so it's, oh, well, we don't have funding for this, so we're not going to do it versus having the tenacity to like, fine, even if we don't have money, we're gonna find a way to renovate these buildings because the living conditions of what the students are living in is subpar. And that was kind of the mentality that Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver had, especially George Washington Carver, because anything that he found in his lab, as soon as he found it out, he brought it to the farmers and said, hey, I just figured this out. Here's a better way of doing X, Y, and Z. So I think that especially for us um, in academia is that we need to not just conduct research, publish, and then move on to the next thing and not not have a uh, infrastructure or mechanism set in place so that what I just found out, what I just um, concluded can actually go out and help the people on which I gathered the information from. Because a lot of times, especially I think in academia, we go out, we um, ask people to conduct research. And then once we get the research published, they never hear from us again until we wanna do more research. I think you're describing um an ethical responsibility of those who do research to the people who uh, participate um, in their research. Um, and I, I think that's a real thing, um, you know? But I do think that, <clears throat> you know, you can ask people for things and if they keep telling you no, um, it seems to me that if you really want that thing like better housing, 
um, on campus. Um, you All the brilliant minds can come together, the people in the architecture school, the folks in the engineering school, um, and the folks who um, know how to build things um, can come together and say, okay, we understand we don't have money, but we're willing to donate our time to create designs for the building and then our people power to actually then implement it. You see what I'm saying? I, I get, I'm just at the age in my life now, y'all, that I'm tired of hearing, of seeing people throw up their hands, right? I, I mean it when I say you can't have nobody, it, it's not gonna work if you want everybody else to believe more in what you're doing than you believe yourself, right? And I just think that we gotta get back to um, some of those more traditional ways of uh, getting, just getting it done um, for ourselves um, and for our communities. And then, I mean, with that being said, you know, we got, we always had, um, and this, one of the problems I think that has persisted over the years, you know, you have these people in academica that get these certain positions and they have that I mentality and they are selfish. So they stole a lot of money, you know, that was donated to, you know, for these people to have these repairs and things done. So it's like, Students, like just I think about a month ago from the band, Tuskegee band, they protested. They wrote a letter to the president. They refused to play in homecoming. They wasn't gonna play in the Turkey Day Classic. And they said, okay, we're gonna demand that, you know, better equipment. You know, we go on trips, we don't get fed. They don't wanna feed us. They gotta get borrow money from their colleagues to, to eat, you know, and things like that. Okay, when, you know, administration have to do better at, you know, hiring people with integrity, people that's not gonna steal from the kids, you know what I'm saying? So we gotta have people, like I say, again, we come back to that concept of love. We gotta care more about the people, you know, and the youth, they see that, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, if you're being taught to be selfish, you know, and not to reach back, not to go back into your community because something is bad about that. So I think that we've gotten away from reaching back and that's why we had all these programs. We was able to benefit from these programs in our neighborhoods back in the days when we were coming up because we had community centers. Most of the community centers now are closed. You know, a lot of the schools in the inner city, they don't have band, they don't have sports. They took that out like years ago. So generations of kids have been raised without these accommodations. So the street seems more attractive, you know, because they see their siblings, siblings, you know, do the street thing and hustle and get money and, you know, and it's kind of, you know, different in the black neighborhoods than it is like, say, in like a suburban, growing up in a suburban area because the role models are not us scientists or us people who work in an industry. 
it they see more of you know murders drive-bys and and brothers standing on the corner with the gold chains and i mean not like back in the days but still they still you know flashing and that's the life that a lot of these kids want to have when they grow up so i guess um some we have to like you say build these places in black communities so that they can have a, a different avenue something else to attract them and then i'm gonna i'm gonna say something that people might think is really crazy and then uh, when i say work with people in the community i mean bring the uh ballers to the table as well right because yeah. they know what they have to survive to be able to ball you understand what i'm saying so yeah. We bring them to the table. If they got money, they can fund. <laughs> um, they can they can fund, and they can say we can say, hey, you know what you got to do to survive day to day. You don't want your little brother to have to live like that. And if you don't want your little brother to have to live like that, then help us, right? Help us to do something better. Right. I'm I'm serious. I'm serious about this. You gotta you gotta attack it on all levels and everybody can be a part of it. Right. Um I you know, I don't think anybody has to be um left out. Really. The only way um, is with everybody. Yeah, it's true. And you know what, these kids, let me tell y'all something. We just gotta hold people accountable. We wouldn't have nobody, no problem getting out there protesting telling the university to fire somebody white if the people have stolen the money from the kids they need to be fired that's what the request from the kids should be right i'm calling them kids from the young people uh <laughs> should be yeah. on the campuses but full stop right with the, with the young people say period <laughs> right that's what the request should be you need to get on up out of here Right, because if somebody come back in and give us some more money, you know, you're going to do that again. Right, what the great Maya Angelou said, when, may she rest in peace, Dr. Maya Angelou said, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Believe them. Mm -hmm. Right, so you ain't, got, you ain't got no place here. You know, now you can do penance and you may be able to make a comeback because you know we're very forgiving people. But you're not going to make that comeback this year and in this position. You need to go stand aside, um, you know, and how dare, how dare anybody would take advantage of resources that have been given for uh, kids and misuse them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think... Uh... I, I touched upon it in another uh, in another episode when I did about HBCs and PWIs, but uh, there seems to be sometimes a sense of culture where it's a good it's a double edged sword. It's that it's like yes, here at HBCU we're a family, but everyone knows that if your sibling does something wrong or does something wrong to you, you will try to get justice or like you will hold that person accountable. The thing that I've noticed is that there have been some people that have worked there for maybe 40 years and been only doing their job for 15. And, but because of the culture of all oh, we're a family is that you're not willing to 
fire, get rid of that person that ultimately is hurting and a detriment to the environment of the institution. Because I can guarantee you at some of these PWIs, if you have enough complaints against you, especially in um, the financial aid office, they're going to start looking into what are you doing and have a review. So I think that <clears throat> it's like you said, Antonia, is that regardless of who the person is, what they look like, it's about accountability. So you might be so-and-so of the president of this sorority fraternity and you have so many connections, but if you are systematically ignoring the grievances of the students, then you have to go. Uh, so I wanted to, so I guess we can kind of transition a little bit to something, not, it's not going to be lighter, but transition to something else. Uh, <laughs> Light. <laughs> um, especially, so with being in STEM and for the past two years dealing with this uh, pandemic and seeing how um, uh, they've characterized it as, oh, like, especially with the vaccine, it's like, oh, Black people don't trust the vaccine, don't trust science, well, they say science or uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, I guess I'll ask, well, everyone, uh, is that how, how can these institutions build trustworthiness with Black communities? And I say trustworthiness and not trust, because trust is something that you give, where trustworthiness is something that you've earned. Hmm. You're preaching today. I'm going to have to think a little bit on that. Listen, this is the real deal, right? I'm in the industry. <laughs> so um, what I want us to not do is to allow um, anything to prevent us from getting access to the things that would make us have better lives. Okay. Um you know, it is very disheartening to me being in the um, biotechnology and industry, the biopharmaceutical industry, whatever you term you want to use, um, and, and not have um, people who look like us participate in clinical trials. It is the way in which you get access to the very best of uh, technologies that are available, right? Now it's a personal choice. You don't have to do it, but it's a way to get access. Um, I do think that, you know, there are some historical things, right? Um, that happened, um, but we're moving away from a time where the generations that actually experienced that those things are actually the people who were, you know, having to deal with some of the diseases that really they are cutting edge therapies being developed that we refuse to access. I just don't understand that. I, I really don't. I must say, I don't understand it. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a two-way street. I think we have to go, we as an industry have to go, have to partner with organizations that have access to the Black community, right, to try and educate them around um, the scientific advances um, that are out there 
um, that they could have access to if they're willing to uh, participate. Um, you know, and I think, I do think um, things are uh, different from the historical um, things that have happened. Um, the industry is different. Um, the federal government is different because um, people forget the biggest things have been the collusion, right? Have been the federal government um, on the wrong side of the issue. And so, you know, I think at some point we're gonna have to just look at it and say, uh, you know, here go my STEM skills. What's the probability, mm -hmm. right? That um, I'm going to experience something negative versus something that could be life-saving for me or my child. Um, and, um, you know, we're gonna have to let go of some of this. I, we're gonna have to, at some point, wipe the canvas clean and come to the table um, with an open mind. Um, you know, that's how I feel yeah. about it. I believe I, I actually believe that you're hundred percent correct. I just, I just know that is an uphill battle given, I guess I'm from, I'm from Baltimore or like from like the Baltimore area. So Johns Hopkins in there, they don't really have a, they have a great name around here, but it's, it's like, you see that they literally built themselves off the back of an entire city. And you know why this whole city does not want to trust any medical advance that comes out of there. But we do need to wipe the slate clean because we need to move forward as a people. Like we need to be able to take on these medical advances. We need to know like what these cutting edge technologies that other people are using so that we can also improve our livelihoods. Mm -hmm. And um, something that I wanted to respond to what you said, Antonia, is that, uh, well, to give you a perspective as to like why some people don't end up getting into these clinical trials. And this is just from doing different groups, uh, focus groups, talking to people is that part of the reason is linked to the healthcare system. Because if I believe that I'm going to be pretty much a, a guinea pig and something happens to me, it's, but this, okay, this, this is their words. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> they was like, oh, they're just going to experiment on me. I'm, a, I'm just like a guinea pig. It's like, if something happens, I don't have any assurances that I will get access to the care that I need. So it's like- It's an informed consent, Chantelle. Oh, I, no. It's I, an exchange. It's an exchange of services. Yes, yes. And I, I, I understand that. But I'm saying it's like, that's what some people don't, don't understand is that yes, there's an uh, informed consent and during the duration of the experiments, like if something happens, they'll make sure that you're like, you will get treatment. Not just during the duration of Chantelle, and I think this is important, right? Okay. If your if your um, your disability is going to last, right? If you're hurt and your disability is going to last beyond the duration, I don't know any of my colleagues in industry that would not say that we're on the hook for making sure you have care um, for that. I I. I just don't, I don't, you know, and I've been in this for, you know, almost 25 years now um, in doing this. Um, and that's why I do think a part of it has to be about, so it's just not education, um, 
you know, a part of it is going to have to be about us wiping the slate clean and being able to walk together, make some agreements um, and walk together uh, in the future, knowing that, um, you know, we're going to behave differently. Um, there are accountability structures in place that just don't allow some of the things to happen um, that have happened in the past, even at Johns Hopkins. <laughs> Um, and this, and then the other thing, and this is more so what I've seen from the academic side of it and the more ethical, um, yeah, the more ethical pro uh, problematic of it is that when you do have people from lower income communities participating in, let's say, uh, let's say like uh, HIV research, and they're trying to find a new treatment for a uh, better treatment for HIV research, you can the people will have access to that as long as they're in, as long as they're being studied. But then once they, once they are no longer in the, uh, in the study as concluded and everything like that, they still have HIV. Now, once it hits the market, they might not necessarily have the resources to access the same drug that they were able to get for free because like, and the only premise was is that you were in a study, but now since you're not, now it becomes a monetary thing. And well, I think that's where kind of the, the ethical part comes into is that if we're studying you, like you will get access to this. But if you're not studying, if we're not studying you anymore, then you're up to your own devices to figure out how to get the thing that you help bring to market. So I think there are expanded yeah, access programs that, um, no, I think it's important for us to have this conversation. And since I'm on the other side, mm -hmm. right, um, to really just uh, provide some some facts, yes. right, there, again, um, you know, there are programs in place for people who are uninsured. Most, if you look at most of the ads, they'll say, if you're not able to get your medicine, call this number, right? That's the pharma industry putting money in, um, saying, listen, we are standing up. We do believe that um, that is the case. Now that's on the pharma side. Now the underinsured um, in America, you, we can't just say uh, attribute it to a pharma issue, mm -hmm. right? That's not that's not really uh, a pharma issue, but there is a pharma does provide access and, and payment uh, for um, the kinds of issues. I don't know. I don't know of a pharmaceutical company who's taken a drug to market who does not put kinds of programs in place of course there's a eligibility right we may not be able to hit industry may not be able to hit everybody but there is um there is help there um and the reason i the the piece that was forgotten is that your hiv was treated and without treatment, there's a high probability you would have been dead, yes, right? Yes. But because you were in this clinical trial, it kicked down the disease enough for you to still be here and maybe even survive without um, further treatment. I don't know. Um, but I, I just... Know. 
the, go, I, I was about to just like say like the issue getting confounds because there is like a problem in our country with like people getting access to just general health care that they would generally need so it's like if i was to put my like health at risk for a clinical trial be the clinical trial be as well like made as possible me like trying to be as like uh giving as possible to like the clinical trial i still could have that fear that i'm not going to be able to get treatment after just because of the american of american healthcare and how yeah. i would need to get it so that yeah. i do that is still like a a, a interesting uh hump yeah, yeah honestly, it's still, I, like, I, hear you Kojo. I think it's a i think it's a good point but again i would say you're getting access to healthcare while you're in the clinical trial and likely cutting edge because where most of them where most of the trials are performed are in academic research centers right not in the community um you know they'll refer patients into into the clinical trial it's a very at the end of the day it's a very personal um decision and i know it's emotionally uh charged but all of my loved ones um you know we have lots of people so the bulk of my experience is in cancer research and so you know um i'm usually looking at clinical trials as an option uh for my loved ones because really you can get access to some cutting edge stuff. And it has really worn on me being um, a black woman in industry um, at such a high level that um, we've not been able to crack this nut and really drive black people to clinical trials where they could have access to really some cutting edge therapies, um, you know, and, and you ju just really life altering. Um, you know, if you look at the, you got to run it, right? Just look at the data. What's the likelihood? You know, life is not zero risk. So I'm not saying there's not risk associated with clinical trials, but what's the, what's the real risk? The one patient out of the, you want to focus on perhaps, and you're not been in this conversation with people. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. here. I'm like, you want to focus on, uh, let's even say five patients out of the 5,000 that's been treated. And okay, that's fine. That's your personal decision um, to do that. But I do think, how do we change that? I think we partner, yeah, we have, can't bring it, we can't bring it directly from industry to the community. I think we got to partner with um, organizations in the community um, that have, pre in the community that have presence um, to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, try and make some forward motion. And I think that um, with me being in like public health ethics and things like that, is that with those five people is, well, first of all, I think everyone, everyone thinks they're that, they're, they're that special five people. Um, so meeting the people where they are is that, that's where I talk about assurances is that, okay, Yes, it is a low probability that you will have an adverse reaction, but in the event that you do, here are the things that we are assuring you so that you feel more comfortable to make that decision. And <clears throat> I guess that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to wrestle with and um, get to is that is that what are the assurances during the study, and then potentially maybe years down the line because you, there are times that. 
I'll be watching TV and you'll hear that commercial. It's like, oh, if you've taken this medication in the past 10 years, <laughs> you're entitled to X, Y, and Z. And then yeah. that's where people are now looking at it. It's just like, wow, it's like, this might not even be an immediate thing that will happen to me. It's like, it's true. Down, like the 10 line. down the 10 years down the it's line, true. because I participated in something. I now have whatever, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 like, it's absolutely it's, true. But what I would say is, Ashanti Ali, with your public health background, look at, look, one, look at the drugs that in the ads that, you know, that come up like that and how old they are, one. Mm -hmm. And two, right, look at the uh, level of data, the, le the level of evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Here we go. I'm, I'm wrapping it up in STEM, <laughs> yes. right? And, um, and really, and you know, really evaluated, right? Because a, a a snippet, right, from a personal injury lawyer in a commercial might not be the thing that should be driving your decision making. And I'm not trying to minimize what our communities feel, because I understand. I understand firsthand because I have people in my family who feel uh, like this, and you know, I've had some pretty tough conversations about the COVID vaccines as well. Right, um, right up and about now. So um, I do, I do understand it, um, but I think it's our responsibility as people who are trained in these rigorous, rigorous ways of evaluating data to really help, you know, demystify the data, mm -hmm. if you will, and you know, make it plain, plain and simple. I tell my teams that all the time. I'm sitting in me. I'm like, listen. I'm the simplest one sitting here. But I need you to break that down for me, right? I want to be able to understand what you're saying and what this piece of data means. Um, and so I think I do think um, I like your idea about you know what are the assurances. I think it's wrapped up in the informed consent form, but you know those documents are complex, right? They're probably not as simple as they could be. Um, but I think you could do an exercise. You could probably do a um, um, something for school, <laughs> um, something for school in which you look at it and you pull out what are the things that are already embedded in there that would get us to that. And what are some of the, maybe some additional things that might be needed, mm -hmm. right? Cause there might be gaps. There might, there might very well be gaps, but I think we got, I think the important thing, right. Is what we're doing now. Let's sit down and have yeah. a conversation, right. Let's just let's just start. Let's just talk about it. Everybody, you know, I'm not going to yell at my grandma for sounding crazy. I'm a scientist. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to yell at her. I'm going to just understand her perspective and where she's coming from. Right. Um, and then I think, you know, the other side has to, you know, try to be not emotional and mm -hmm. listen and listen in a, you know, unimpassioned way, dispassionate way um, to uh, those of us who may be able to break it down. Yes. And okay. And these are the last two questions because I think I've held, I've held you guys here a long time. Um, yeah. Being in STEM and having the information, but then also having the historical context and I call it the historical trauma of what has been done to us by by these industries. How have you reconciled with, with that and how have you overcome that to continue in, in STEM? 
I got that. <laughs> yeah, I got this. Oh God. Yeah. I'm a chemical engineer. The the oil industry has done terrible things to many different parts of this country, have made so many parts of like our own community so unliv unlivable. But I personally am just like, I want to take all of these skills that they're trying to put on, like be put for all of these monetary purposes and actually put something sustainable in the ground, actually take it back to Ghana and actually build factories or build things that will not be like, that won't be, that won't be polluting the air, like won't be polluting the, the ecosystem that's there, actually be able to like take a water mitigation system that I came up with and like put it in all of these areas that have harm. It's like take the education that I have and like note recognize that I've seen all the bad stuff that my field has tried to do and just put push it in the other direction because it's just not it's, we just can't keep going like this the the world is burning and it's like not my fault but you're interested be you'll be part of the problem if you don't use your skills to solve exactly right. I'll be I could be pouring so oil like into that. the I could I be like pouring that. oil. I could have been pouring oil into the Gulf within a, <laughs> last year, but no, I'm I am pushing mm -hmm. myself in the exact opposite direction. And 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 one other piece I think Kojo is, and I think uh, governments are starting to do this. Hold those companies responsible for creating some of that uh, change, right? In mm -hmm. the right, in the right direction, right? They are. So that, that provides me an avenue for employment, but primarily I just, I see as like, I can, I've seen the area around my house just become worse and worse just due to pollution. I'm like, no, we need to literally go in the other direction. We just can't have it like this. Mm -hmm. right. Well, that sounds awesome. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. I'm a praying woman. I'm not crossing no fingers. Well, pr pray for me, see. please. I will <laughs> see. I for you, Kojo. Thank you. And I must say, I am very proud of you. I'm very proud of all of y'all. Because um, okay. in your own ways, in your very own unique ways, um, you're standing up and really trying to make a difference. And it sounds like really have already had a positive impact um, in the places where you stand. So um, I want to make sure before we end, I say thank you for that and how very proud I am of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> um, Ronald, did you wanna, or uh, Antonio, did you wanna talk about how, um, well, especially with you being in the pharmaceutical company and like wrestling with um, being, with, knowing what they've done, well, what some companies have done to black people and the historical trauma of it, and then reconciling like working with, within it as well. Ashante Ali, I've talked a lot, so I don't know if Ron has something uh, to say, and I can go after him. Is that okay? Yes. Well, I mean, me having you know the opportunity to study systemic lupus erythematosus, which is a disease that affects mostly Black women, um, that have you know kind of kept me you know, interested in studying sciences, and then also being affiliated with um, Dr. Clayton Yates in his lab, studying um, cervical cancer in black women and um, also prostate cancer in black men and discovering that, you know, there's a different gene that's involved, which causes the cancer to be more aggressive in blacks than it is in whites. So we talk about like clinical studies 
I mean, if he has him and Dr. James, they have, they have um, actually has a publication on this Kaizo gene and the peptide that binds to it that stops the progression of this type of cancer. So he's just published in Nature, the Journal of Nature, Nature and Medicine about um, this particular peptide. So things like that and understanding that we need more people of color studying these diseases so that we can bring these cures and and bring you know more black people into these clinical studies but under, with the understanding that you know we all have a little difference in our dna right so we need more samples from like african americans because now we're using samples from i think it gets the samples from somewhere in africa I don't know which country, but they get samples and that's how we kind of like do our experimental studies. And that's how this gene was, was able to be found that this, there was a different sequence in um, this developing this cancer. So again, um, I say, you know, things like discoveries like that, that's done at Tuskegee. And I just, you know, feel honored to, to have that opportunity to study at HBCU um, as great as Tuskegee. That kind of keeps me motivated. Thank you, Ronald. That's beautiful. I ain't even had to get on uh, get on my uh, clinical trial platform. There it is. He summed it up. Why like <laughs> need to participate, right? Yeah. Uh, but um, how have I reconciled history, right? I mean, it's a larger, it's a larger, right? How how have I reconciled living as a black woman in America, given the historical context of America? What I believe. Um, I believe in the future, right? I believe that people don't have to be what they once were. I believe people can be better. Um, I really do. Um, and how I've reconciled myself with being an industry and being a practicing Catholic is that this is my relationship with my God. Right. And I believe that he's um, uh, blessed me with a brain to think and a brain to solve problems. Right. Um, and this industry actually allows me to do that. Um, it, it allows me to help um, in a way that I hadn't imagined that. Um, I would be doing when we opened. I told you I thought I would be doing that. Uh, direct uh, patient care as a physician um, and actually having um, a degree in biology um, and being trained educationally in Boston, right? One of the global hubs of biotech, um, you know, has made me able to help in ways that I just didn't think um, possible. And that brings me a great deal of satisfaction, even if other people can't see it or understand it um, just yet. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I, 
guess I just kind of want to say it's like for for me being in public health is how I've tried to reconcile it is that um, uh, I guess because being in public health and knowing the things that these industries have done is that kind of some people have looked at me and it's like, oh, well, you're part of, of them. And what kind of kept me sane and kept me going is that I realized that when I'm looking at these statistics, when I'm looking at the data is that, yes, I see numbers, but I also see like my sister, I see my mother, I see my aunt, my cousins, like, and I use that, the connectiveness of it, because a lot of people, I'll say this, is that with people of other races, they study public health, but as Black people, we experience public health, because with a lot of the indices that you look at us is that we, we are the ones that are suffering the most from these things. So I guess looking at it through the lens of a Black person in public health and not being in public health as a Black person has kind of helped me reconcile the, the two of them. Um, uh, last, last question, then we'll just get to um, different plugs that you guys might have going on. Um, so for Black, uh, for Black students and then also for Black parents, what would be the kind of overarching advice that you would, you would give uh, to them? So students that might be going into um, STEM, whether it be uh, nursing, the uh, biology, chemical engineering, and then for parents that want to try to uh, inspire interests in STEM in their children, you either one, you guys can. I would say um, internships. Um, I would encourage them to apply for internships and. Um, to do some type of research while they are, you know, in their studies, undergraduate studies, or even in high school, you know, get involved in some type of, um, you know, if, if you're interested, you know what I'm saying, in any type of science, because everybody is not going to be a scientist. Everybody's not going to go into, you know, industry. I mean, I think the most important thing that we can do is like, and give them different avenues because someone might want to be engineers. Like I'm a, a bi biologist, like, you know, she's an in industry, you know what I'm saying? We all have different paths, Chem chemical engineering, you know? So, you know, we have to show them how broad science is. It's not just what I do, you know what I'm saying? There's so many other different things that you can do in science that so far and beyond, it's like when I go to a conference, it's like, I don't know half the stuff like some of the people are presenting because it's not my field, but it's so many different, you know, fields and science that they may be attracted to. So the main thing is bringing that to their attention and give them the opportunity to, you know, experience and see that these different many different avenues they could take in science. So, so exposure, you know, to the different things that are different way, different, you know, different careers in science. Thank you, Ron. Uh, uh, hmm. 
Honestly, I guess for both ways, for both the parents and the students, I would just say for the students, like apply. If you're even like slightly doubting that you'll be able to get any sort of position or that you feel you're not smart enough to do the next thing that you're thinking about, just apply. And even if you don't, even if you don't like stack up as high as you think you should, you will have learned so much and gotten so much better just by going through that application. And then for parents to anybody trying to get their kids involved in STEM, if they see their, if you see that your kid is interested in that's something that's like a like logical or like mathematic, if they like things that have a lot of like shapes and sizes to them, or if they find themselves like really trying to look at the numbers and like and like trying to um, interact with any like math in their own lives just apply them to that like open their minds to anything that you see them doing and then try to just inspire them to like look closer at the things that they have thank you so i would say uh three things um ron hit on it um at the end of his uh remarks exposure exposure is key right if we want kids to believe um, that they can, we have to show them um, others who have. Um, so I think exposure um, is key, hands on. I'm out of the cooperative education um, experience from Northeastern. So hands on is just like, you know, amazing, right? Because you find out what you like and what you don't like, um, but um, you're still being. Um, exposed. And so I really like that concept. What I will say as a, um, an employer uh, that has various, put various programs in place for young people, um, be, because um, COVID has changed everything, right? And people don't, aren't working with necessarily the money that they had pre-COVID. Be open to free work. What I hear a lot from our kids is I'm not working for free. Be open to that, right? Because um, again, it's about exposure, right? And you, they, this lab may not be able to afford you um, as a research assistant, but um, they'll jump through hoops for you um, if you say you're work, willing to work without pay. And then guess what happens when they do get funded? because they've already trained you to do the work. They're gonna hire you. They're not gonna go out looking for somebody else. So I want our kids to expand their mind. I mean, something Ron said, or it can't always be about money, right? It's about elevating your thinking um, and your experiences. The other thing is I'm big into self-advocacy. Our kids, as early as we possibly can, we need to treat them, uh, teach them to be self-advocates. So. I know that um, people who look like us in STEM are not numerous, but that should not prevent our kids. If you are interested in STEM, you identify as somebody, go look for somebody, right? And reach out to them and ask for help. Ask them to be a mentor, a coach, a guide, right? Um, I don't know any person my age in STEM and most of my friends are in STEM, um, I would say no to that, right? Because we might not know about you, but you might know about us. Because look, I'm going to be on the podcast now. <laughs> so <laughs> if you 
if you need some help and you think I might be able to help you, you reach out to me. Um, and so those are the three things um, I would say. I would like to, to add to that, um, the part where you say, um, we sometimes you know, need to work for free. Actually, that's how I got my um, first position is I, I volunteered to work in the lab over the summer. And um, that was my first research experience. And mm -hmm. the next semester, I received a check in the mail with two, two, two bands. And I was like, yo, where this money come from? But it had my name on the check. So, you know, of course I deposited it. <laughs> of course I deposited it. <laughs> I was walking down the hall and Dr. Caterpillar was like, yo, Ronald, come here. So I was like, yo, dad, what I do now? He was like, did you get a check? I was like, oh man, I was like, yeah. He was like, oh, you're not in no trouble, not in any trouble. You know, that's some extra money we had left over from the grant, you know, we had to spend it. So I was like, whoa, this could be, you know, very rewarding, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> kind of kept me going. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I got opportunity to, you know, to get my education paid for at City College with, you know, to get it be put on a grant and then from there a fellowship at Tuskegee. And it all started from me volunteering, you know. I think that's a better word, Ron. Not free work, volunteering. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think as students, um, students, young people volunteering your time in order to learn. And then for people who are established, volunteering your time and energy to have an impact. And I think that's something that we need to definitely um, start considering more. I know that for the, what the Black Panthers did is that one Saturday um, a month that they would get black physicians to come and give um, physicals to whoever wanted to come and um, get them. And I think that type of mentality is something that we definitely need to bring back. So, for uh, those of you who have anything that they want to plug or uh, promote, um, eat, everyone will get at least like one minute if they have something. Like what, what's going on? Well, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm dropping an album in two months. <laughs> okay. Completely not, no science related whatsoever, but I will be dropping a jazz album in about two months. It's called Executables. You can find it on uh, Spotify and Apple Music. And uh, you can look me up at uh, Night Sky Project on Instagram. Yeah, man, yo, hit me with your information. Like, I will. Like, send me a, you know, your email link or whatever. Most certainly, I'll get your, e I'll get both of your emails off of uh, Ashanti. Mm -hmm. uh, with me, you know, I'm getting ready to graduate with my PhD, and hopefully, I don't know where I'm going yet, but I have an interview with the lab at Raygon at, at Harvard. So hopefully I do okay and they invite me up there so I can bring, you know, some real brotherhood to, <laughs> to Harvard. Cambridge. <laughs> I love it. Uh, good luck with that. I'll say a special prayer for you. Uh, both of you, um, I'm gonna know somebody famous and I'm gonna know somebody at Harvard, look at that. 
um, what, um, what I would say is if you're suffering uh, with disease, um, consider um, a clinical trial as an option. Um, educate yourself about it and see if there is, it might be right for you. So I want to go ahead and say thank you to, every, to everyone that was on here. Um, as you said earlier, Antonia, is that you were the only uh, Black woman on here, and that was very intentional because I think a lot of times when we do talk about STEM is that uh, we like to get Black men on, and it's just, it's not the accurate representation of what's, what's out there, of us as a people. So I want to give a special thank you to uh, you coming on. To Ron, thank you. Co-chair, thank you. I know you're you're in the East Coast, so you were on here mm -hmm. uh, pretty early for you. So yeah. I just want to say thank you to everyone. Um, and I hope everyone has enjoyed this conversation. That has been another episode of Tomb Talks with the Pharaoh. And I'll see you guys next week.